Uh, good evening. My name is Stephen Dawson, and I'm one of the leaders here at Emmanuel. Great to be with you uh, today as we continue our Royal Outcast series, looking at the stories that we find in the books of Samuel, particularly looking at the life and times of King David. I think it's fair to say the last few weeks, and I have to say the weeks coming up as well, are not the most uplifting passages to read. They're full of all kinds of grot and torture and death and all kinds of bad things. But the good news is that Jesus is in the pages of them and has things, for, things to say to us uh, here uh, today. And so today we're looking at chapter 18 um, from verse 1. And uh, so you can take a moment just to find that in your own Bibles or your or devices that you've got, as well as having it on the screens in just a moment. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the theme of destruction. Like I said, happy days. And how to destroy our families, church and lives. Uh, you can start with a nice grin. Yes. Hurrah. And uh, we're going to look at the fact that to deal with destruction or potential destruction in our lives means sometimes we have to do hard things, say hard things. A bit like my uh, eight-year-old son uh, who recently uh, scraped his uh, elbow. Uh, he's now got matching elbow scrapes uh, on the playground. And, uh, and he said, oh, my elbow's really, hurt, really sore. And so he cleaned it up and he went to bed that night. And the next day, kind of at the end of the day, he said, my elbow really, really hurts now. And we took a closer look and found that there was still a bit of playground left in it. Uh, by that, I don't mean a swing or a roundabout. I mean a bit of asphalt in it. And so I had to say to him, son, we have to get it out. He's like, there is no way you are touching my elbow. So I know it's going to be good for you. He's like, no, 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 that's going to be painful. It already hurts. You're not touching it. Eventually, we convinced him that the small amount of pain or the, maybe the large amount of pain as far as he's concerned was going to be worth it because actually it was going to stop it getting infected and ultimately destroying his arm. So eventually he let us take it out. Of course, it has now begun to heal over. Now he's got a matching one of the other arm. That's how they, they work. Uh, but uh, that sense of we're going to deal with something and sometimes a bit painful, but it's worth it because it saves off further destruction. So in this, we're looking particularly at um, the life of David and Absalom. These are kind of the two key characters we've been looking at over the last few weeks. King David is God's anointed king. The one that God has chosen to sit upon the throne and to leave a legacy of other kings right through, right through his lineage, right down to Jesus, uh, the king of kings. But Absalom, his third son, he wasn't happy with the way that it was going and has decided to try and take the kingship from David. And has actually chased David off out of the city of Jerusalem. And David has sent a spy back in, a guy called Hushai, who's convinced Absalom to uh, not wage war on David straight away, which has allowed David to get his own army together. And now David's army and Absalom's army, they're about to go at it in a battle. And it's quite a long passage today, so listen up. There's some interesting things about trees and stones and heads and hairs and all kinds of stuff. So listen up and uh, see if you can follow along. It says this, Then David mustered the men who are with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one third under the command of Joab, one third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the man, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall, not, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. 
The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a ten of sorry of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, there is nothing hidden from the king. Then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, "I will not waste time like this with you." And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Jab's armour bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Jab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom is out in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Let's pray and get into this. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a true account of things that happened with your people. And in your times, Lord God, and you've recorded them for us to learn things about you and about your people, how you relate to them and how you relate to us. And I pray as we listen today that our ears would be open and attentive, that our minds might be sharp and our hearts might be ready to uh, take on what you want to say to us. I pray you might encourage us, you might provoke us. I pray we might not be just hearers of the word, but we might be doers of it. Lord God, that we might act on what we hear today, that we might become more like Jesus in our lives. I pray for those who don't yet know you, Lord. I pray even, this, uh, even today, Lord God, that you might uh, bring faith into their hearts, that they might want to follow you and uh, make you Lord of their lives as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, long story with lots of bits in it. So I'm just going to give us a quick uh, paraphrase, quick re recap on it. So basically, David and Absalom, they're going into battle with one another. And uh, David has amassed a great army to do this. But suddenly when it comes to the crunch, David doesn't quite follow through as he sh should. He says to his kind of generals, his commanders, he says, you know, actually, you know, go into battle, but just deal gently with Absalom. Absalom, this wicked and rebellious man who, as far as I'm concerned, wants David and all his men dead, who wants to tear up the nation of Israel, so David's like, no, deal gently with him. 
And uh, so the generals, they go out into battle and they win a battle, just very quick mention of it. And it mentions very f- something funny about the forest devouring more men than the sword. Who knows what that's about? And uh, it's interesting to unpick that, but I haven't got time today. But basically, eventually, David's men, they win the battle. And then one of David's men or some of David's men come across Absalom hanging in a tree. Absalom's head has got stuck in some branches as he's gone past. And uh, we'll find out in a minute that Absalom had a thing about gorgeous hair. And so Absalom's hair and his head are caught up in this tree and he's now dangling in this tree. And this soldier then goes to tell Joab, one of the three uh, generals of David's. And Joab says, why didn't you kill him? And the soldier's like, duh, the king told us not to. And Joab's like, well, but essentially David's advice to us was wrong. And so Joab then goes essentially tortures him. It's grotty what he does. He just strikes him with javelins, not to kill him, but to inflict further pain before then telling some of his soldiers to take him down, kill him, throw him in a pit and put stones over him. And then we have another bit at the end about Absalom's monument. So there's all kinds of different bits in it today. And uh, if you're an Israelite, some of this you think, oh, I know what that means. That's some stuff about stones and stuff about trees that would mean something to you. Unfortunately, we're not in Old Testament Israel. So we have to unpack it a little bit today. There are things for us to learn, things about destruction that uh, we can find out today. And we must be really careful as we look at stories like this, long passages of uh, Scripture with all kinds of imagery in it, that we don't treat it like an allegory. What do I mean by that? An allegory is like a story with a meaning. It's like the boy that cried wolf. It's kind of, it's kind of told and every sentence points to the fact that we shouldn't lie. That's the whole setup for it. That's not like this. This is real history. There's not a simple story written in it. It's people with all kinds of mixed motives and actions, all kinds of stuff. And we've got to use a bit of wisdom to kind of navigate uh, through it and see where God is in the midst of it and what it says to us. But I trust that as we do that together, God will speak to you and help me as I articulate it. So we've got three points. Destruction in our families, destruction in the church, and destruction, destruction in our lives. But let's start with destruction in family. <clears throat> and this, this first point really is explicitly for parents. And uh, you might be a, a parent, but I would say, make sure you listen up. And maybe you're going to be a parent in the future. Again, listen up. Maybe you're saying, well, I've done my parenting. My, my kids have left home or I'm, I'm not going to have any kids for whatever reason. Well, actually, it's good for you to listen as well because we care about all the church receiving teaching. And this is a key part of some of our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, their life. And we want to support them and help them in it. And there's things for us to learn as well, no matter who you are in the room. But if you're a parent, particularly listen up. If you're a Christian in the room, you have been adopted into God's family. And uh, when you come into his family, God becomes your good and perfect heavenly father. He's the parent over us and he's the one that we should seek to emulate when we parent our own children. And he very graciously gives us instructions in his word, the Bible, on how to parent our kids, as well as examples about how to parent and how to not parent. And David's parenting of Absalom is a fitting example of how not to parent, of how to be destructive in your family. David, there's a lot about David's life you would love to emulate. He was a man after God's own heart, understood a lot about who God was in his grace and mercy and wrote lots of psalms that are very helpful, helpful to us in our lives and in our worship to God. When it comes to parenting and family life, he screws it up left, right and centre, to be honest with you. And we see this again in today's story, in the way that he parents Absalom. Instead of dealing with him properly, he shrinks back from the actions that he should take. In Proverbs 22, 6, it says this about how we should parent. It says this, Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. 
Read that again. Start children off on the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. I think it's fair to say David didn't do that. So it's not much of a surprise that Absalom turned from the way that he should go into a path of destruction. One of the key roles of parents is to train up their children, to input the worldview they are to adopt, the values that they are to imbibe, morality, their spiritual outlook, even table manners. As Christian parents, it's important that obviously we make the Bible and the gospel message central to our teaching of our children as well. And this is a proactive role. This takes intentionality as we think through how to develop our children. And it also takes a reactive measure as well, as different things come up to deal appropriately with the issues that arise throughout a child's life. Unfortunately with David, we see time and time again him failing to lead his family as he should. And today's story is just another example of that failure. David is going into battle. The very reason he's going there is to deal with his rebellious son, Absalom. But when he gets to it, he gives a confusing, ambiguous message. He says, let's amass this army. Let's put them into thousands and hundreds. Let's go and do this thing properly. Oh, but, but, but when it comes to Absalom, just, you know, hold back, protect him, be a bit gentle. Now, that's when David should have stepped in, so deal with him. This is it. This is the time we're to sort him out. He's coming against the Lord's anointed. He's breaking up God's people. We need to deal with him properly. He's not willing to sort it out as he should. David often, obviously has some kind of emotional blind spot, which is not all that surprising. Absalom is still his son after all. Maybe David feels guilty about the fact he's not done well with Absalom in the past. So he doesn't feel like he can follow right through with what he should be doing with him. But as a result, he's making foolish military decisions. He can put the battle at risk. He's making immoral decisions concerning his own people. He has a responsibility as king over them. It's hard for us to quite get a hit in this. We're not living at war t- in war times, but there's decisions you have to make in war that are good for the people that you are leading. And he's not doing that. He's refusing to see his son's actions in the true light of their sinfulness and the need for them to be dealt with. What does that mean for parents today, though? What does that mean for us? Well, it doesn't mean do away with your child when they exhibit traits of rebellion. Even maybe when you feel like you might want to, that is not the application of today's message. But it does, however, warn us against the dangers of being too gentle with our children, of not dealing with them properly. Um, We're going to look at that, but while we're looking at it, we'll also look at the fact that we can also be too hard with our children. Both come from a place of convenience or or a misunderstanding of what love and grace uh, contained in discipline and training really mean. So let's start in terms of being too soft on children. I would say there is a current climate right now of destruction in terms of the way we raise children because we are too soft with them. We're saying no to a child has been called into question in recent years. Don't, say no, don't even say no to a child. Well, the fact that the responsibility for parenting a child has been taken from parents and given to children, that's not God's created order. Parent, a child-led parenting is not a thing we see in the Bible. No, no, children are to look to parents for instruction and training. And it's not just the Bible says that, common sense says that. I read an article in The Independent recently that cites top psychologists that said the current climate of the way that children are, are, are taught is, is, is concerning. There's an epidemic of parents failing to say no to the children and, and failing to put appropriate boundaries in place for them which is not preparing them for school life. If you are a working school, you know, lots of children turn up and the first time they hear no is in the classroom. That shouldn't be the case. 
As top psychologists, they would say there's a creating a little emperor syndrome. Children are growing up thinking, I'm the centre of my world and that everyone should say yes to me and to my whims. That's not preparing them for school and that's not preparing them for life. Maybe you've seen the Simon Sinek talk that went viral this last couple of years, talking into the millennial generation and talking about the fact that uh, we've been left with uh, uh, all kinds of issues in our generation because parents have failed to tell their children that uh, they're anything less than wonderful. They're wonderful when they get it right. They're wonderful when they get it wrong, instead of disciplining them the way they should. The Bible teaches us that fathers discipline those they love. That love is not simply giving in to every request of a child. There's actually kindness and love in discipline. What do I mean by discipline? I mean training. Training your children, intentionally looking at how to, to provide boundaries for them. When you provide boundaries for a child, it is a blessing. Children crave boundaries in reality. And it's better that they discover while they are young the limits that they can push. And let me tell you, as a father of six children, children love to push boundaries. They love it. You put up a boundary, they want to test it. And as parents, we're there to deal with it when it comes. Not to be surprised with it, not to be angered by it. I think, great, it's okay for you to push the boundaries and me to teach you where they are. That is a privilege as a parent, to do it in a safe environment with parents that love them to prepare them for a world that in reality also has boundaries. I love my children and uh, they are aged between 3 and 14. And uh, the nice thing is when they get older, they begin to become a bit more like my friend. There's things we have in common, do things we get a level of conversation goes up a level. But my first thought with my children is not how can I be their friend, it's how can I parent them. That's my first and foremost role with them, not just to be their best mate. I'm not there just to be liked by them. I'm there to love them no matter how they respond to me. And sometimes loving them means they're not going to like the things I've got to say to them or even some of the actions that I do. We are not to, uh, so we're not to parent out of reaction to the lack that we had as a child. I see parents sometimes, parenting, I tell you even my own story, is that I've, I've got wonderful parents who are going to hear this message. And uh, they're great. And uh, they disciplined me in love, and at times hard, in hard ways that I remember thinking, I'm never going to be this hard on my kids. And then I had kids. I started to think, oh, I see. I see how this works now, and I'm thankful for it. But maybe your upbringing was not the same. Maybe your parents were harsh in a way that's not godly and beyond the realms of love. And I made you think, well, that has a role. I'm going to parent my kids this way. I just caution you. Don't parent your kids in reaction to how you are parented. Parent your kids in the light of what the Bible says and in light of what is best for your child. We need to be intentional about how we do it. I'd love to unpack more what that means. We haven't got time today. There's more specifics we could look at. But we're just going to look at a couple of verses from one of the books of wisdom in the Bible, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 29, 19 says this, By mere words, a servant is not disciplined. For though, he, for though he understands, he will not respond. So we're not talking about servants, obviously about children, but the principle applies. By mere words, you can't discipline a servant. You can't discipline a child. You can't train them. Because although they hear it, they won't actually respond. There's a danger sometimes. You think just telling off a child will change that child's behaviour. It won't. 
Sometimes you're just a, qu- a quiet word and instruction just to remind what they're meant to be doing. That does work. But ultimately, if they're in wrong, if they're in sin, they're getting stuff wrong, actually needs to follow through with an act of some kind. There's a danger if we just go for telling off because there's just one level of, you know, t- telling off is uh, to-, to up the level, you just go to up the volume or up the threats. And suddenly you get into an emotional battle with children. I know me and my wife, sometimes we catch each other saying, you know what, you need to discipline that child. You need to get some consequences in there because all you're doing right now is just getting louder in the volume or louder with your threats. And that's not actually helping them. And it's not helping you. You're just getting more frustrated. Just throw it through. Just put the boundary in place. And they shouldn't have done that. They've done it. What's the consequence? The consequence isn't just upping the level of volume. It's actually dealing with it properly. And how should we deal with it? Well, it says this in Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. We're to provide consequences, provide discipline, to provide training at times that hurts. Now, I'm not here simply advocating corporal punishment or spanking, and definitely not a rod that is illegal in UK society, as is any implement. Please don't do that. But there is a principle here that we can take, and that is discipline should hurt at times. My children, I take things from them which makes them upset. I upset my children on a weekly basis, sometimes daily basis if they're off on one. Let me tell you, because I have to say, you know what? You've crossed the line again, which means I'm going to have to remove this from your life. Or I'm going to have to remove you from this situation. I'm going to have to stop you having this or whatever it is. And they're not going to like me for it. It's painful for them. Right now, removing Fortnite from my teenage sons is painful as. And... uh, I smile about it, but it's not a joy to me to take away things that my children enjoy. The Bible talks about discipline being painful at the time. And often when we hear that, we think, yeah, that's right. It's painful for the person receiving discipline. The reality is for a loving parent, it's painful to discipline a child as well. I don't like that, that thinking, oh, I've caused that. But why do I do it? Because I know it's the loving thing to do. I know that it produces fruit in their life. And I've been a parent long enough to know to see that fruit worked out. You know, at times when my kids were young thinking, this is not working. Why are we still hanging in doing this? As the years go, you're thinking, oh, there's a reason we just kept dealing with it diligently, following through on what we decided. We're to teach our kids to love discipline as well. If you ask my children, which you're welcome to do, how do you know that your dad loves you? They will say, he kisses us all the time. And he tells us he loves us all the time. And he disciplines us. Why? Because I've taught them to understand that discipline is part of my love for them. Sometimes in the moment as I'm disciplining it, they don't want to hear it. And that's okay. But I make sure I follow it afterwards. I just, just want to remind you, the reason I took that from you, the reason I put that boundary in place is because I love you. I want you to grow up to be a young man, a young woman who is responsible and loves others and isn't selfish as a good member of society, as also as one who loves Jesus. So that's why I'm putting some of these boundaries in place for you. And sometimes in that, I'll point out to other children that they know, who they find difficult. I say, you know, some of the reason that child is difficult is because the parents who, who do love them, but have not expressed love in discipline. Do you want to be like that? They're like, no, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. Discipline is a form of love. And it's important our children understand that. And it's good to name it explicitly with them. David, he went gently with Absalom. He didn't discipline. He didn't train as he should have done. That would have been the really loving thing to do for Absalom. I could have saved him from the destructive journey that Absalom went on in later life. Being too gentle is one danger in parenting. 
But being too hard is also another danger. Being a parent is hard, it is relentless, and sometimes it's easy just to go easy on them. Just when there's a request there or they're being difficult, just to say, okay, whatever, whatever, just relent to them. Another way that we can kind of uh, take the easy road is just to say no to everything. I have six kids in my house who ask me for stuff all the time. And it can be wearing at times. And it would be just easy for me just to say no to every request. That would make my life easier. But we're not meant to be like that. That's not how God parents us. God loves to give. God loves to say yes to us. What's your view of God? Do you know that? God loves to say yes. You think, oh, I can't ask him for this. You know what? God wants to hear what you've got a request. Because he wants to look for ways to bless you. Let me read a quote from a a guy called Doug Wilson who wrote a book about fathering. This quote, however, applies to all parents. So when I say father, read mother if you're a mother. It says this, What are fathers called to? Fathers give, fathers protect, fathers bestow, fathers yearn and long for the good of their children. Fathers delight, fathers sacrifice, fathers are jovial and open-handed. Fathers create abundance, and if lean times come, they take the leanest portion themselves and create a sense of gratitude and abundance for the rest. Fathers love birthdays and Christmas because it provides them yet another excuse to give some more to the kids. When fathers say no, as good fathers do from time to time, it is only because they're giving a more subtle gift, one that is a bit more complicated than a cookie. They must also include among these gifts things like self-control and discipline and a work ethic. But they are giving these things, not taking something else, just for the sake of taking it away. Fathers are not looking for excuses to say no. Their default mode is not no. Good fathers are looking for opportunities to say yes. I felt so challenged when I read this at the time, a few years back, thinking, I think my default might have tended to no. I want my default to be yes. I want it to be yes. And when I say no, it's only because I've got something better for my children. I've yet to meet a perfect parent. There's a spectrum of being too gentle and being too hard. And sometimes we can swap between the different ones, depending how we're feeling, or different ones, depending which kid we're dealing with. Wherever you are on that, maybe you've got it wrong. If you're a parent, you definitely have got it wrong. You can ask God for forgiveness for where you've got it wrong, and you can ask him for your help. Say, God, I've been too, too gentle. I've not disciplined as I should have done. I've been too hard and harsh. Teach me, teach me to love as I should. My last top tip on parenting before we move on to the next point is that if you're a parent or when you are a parent, find other parents to chat with. Talk, talk it about parenting. Sometimes we can be so private about it or ashamed about the fact that we're not getting it right. You know, I love talking about parenting with other parents because I need other people to input. I'm too close to my own family sometimes and too caught up in it to see things as I should. I need other people to talk in. So to find others who can talk in, not just other parents. I've got wonderful single friends who love my kids and love me and happily call me out and stuff as well. Find other people to speak to you. Second point we're going to look at, destruction in church. What do I mean by that? I mean destruction between each other that can uh, result in the fact that we don't get in each other's lives as we should. How do we see it in the story? Well, we see it in the fact that Joab is decisive where David fails to act. David has given an order to deal gently with Absalom. Joab totally says, no to that, ignores it and goes after uh, Absalom and deals with him decisively. Does he deal well with him? No. He tortures him. He does gross things. And his motives are mixed. Yes, he wants to do the right thing. It's the right thing for Israel. It's the right thing for David. But there's also vendetta in Joab's heart as well. Absalom's the one who burnt Joab's field. 
And so Joab's generally cross at him anyway. But there is a decisiveness and a rightness also about what Joab does. <clears throat> Joab saw more clearly that David allowed the rebel leader to live. There will continue to be perpetual civil war and unrest in Israel. Something needed to happen. So what can we learn from that? Well, we can learn that we can be a force for good in other people's lives. This goes against what David says, but ultimately it was good. A bit like parenting. Sometimes you're choosing to do the hard things. Well, we can do that in a relationship within the church. We too are a family. Choosing to do the hard thing. Choosing to say the hard thing to other people at times, but from a heart of love. Looking out for those mixed motives like Joab had, but doing things out of a pure heart. Let me take you to a verse in Proverbs 27. It says this, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Doing good to people all the time isn't necessary, or on the surface what seems good, isn't always the right thing. The right thing is often about wounding other people. What do I mean by that? Sometimes to, to show real love and friendship I means just calling something out in another person's life. Being really honest with them about it. like cleaning out that elbow. Now getting out that bit of grit, yeah, it's not pleasant at the time for my son, but it was the right thing for him. We have a duty to one another in the Christian church. We have a duty to one another to say, hey, I want to love you. I want to encourage you. But at times I need to say there's things in your life that you might need to get sorted. People come and speak to me all the time about other people, which is great. That's part of my job as a pastor here at the church. People come and talk to me and we pray for other people, that kind of stuff. But sometimes people come and want to talk to me about an issue in someone else's life. And, and my radar's often up for that. Someone sits down and says, I'd love, just love to talk to you about so-and-so. I'm like, hmm, let's see where this goes. I've just noticed they're a bit like this. I've got a bit gossipy. I was like, oh, really? Well, we're moving into that as well right now. I said, if you've got an issue with them and you see something in their life, guess what? You get to go and deal with that. They're like, yeah, but that's, that's, that'd be really difficult to say. I was like, I said, what? so I get to do it? I said, no, 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 no. Matthew 18, Jesus talks about this. If you've got an issue with a brother, you see an issue, guess what? You get to go and chat to them yourself. That ain't good news for us. You're like, oh, but do I have to? I'll just ignore it. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. No, no. We have a duty to one another. If it's out of a place of love and because you want good for that person, then you know what? Go to them. There's something in their life thing. You know, if, it, if there's something in their life to such a point that you're going to talk about it with someone else, go and talk to them instead. So that's the place you should be starting. There's lots of verses in the New Testament about being, uh, being uh, good to one another. Let me just read one from James 5. It says this, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you uh, wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It says, brings back a sinner. You know, we all have the ability to sin in our words and our thoughts and our deeds. And we all have the ability to call it out. And I say, you know what? There's something in your life that just doesn't quite line up with Scripture. Can I just bring that to you? And let me bring you back. And we say, it's bringing them back from destruction. Saying we are the church and we can save each other from a path of destruction. When David falls into adultery with Bathsheba, God sends Nathan to confront him on it. When David fails to deal properly with Absalom, God uses Joab to sort the situation out. The Holy Spirit sends other people into our lives to deal with things. Who is it the Holy Spirit might be prompting you to help right now? Maybe you're thinking, oh no, this is speaking to me because I'm having a bit of an issue with someone. You know, well, maybe that Holy Spirit just wants a little tap you on the shoulder. Just stir your heart to love that person enough to go and talk to them about it. The Bible talks about the fact that we can destroy uh, we can be forces of destruction by doing things wrong. 
sins of commission, sins that we commit. The Bible also talks about sins that we omit, things that we fail to do. We can fail to do the right by someone by failing to talk to them about hard things. We are not to be a timid people. We're to be those who are good at confronting each other in love. Recently, I just heard this week of a friend of mine who had to say sorry to another friend because uh, kind of in the years previously, they hadn't picked up on something in their life that someone else had done. So they're, they're this, uh, <laughs> explain it properly. My friend had, uh, they're both my friends. Friend number one, <laughs> stay with me. Friend number one. Uh, she's married and uh, she and her husband, when they're out and about, she would often uh, kind of uh, just disrespect her husband in just not very nice ways. Just, it would seem jokey, but it wasn't. It was quite cutting. And often the husband would let, be left a little bit kind of, you know, what do I even say in response to this? And just, just knock him and knock him and knock him and knock him and knock him. And, uh, and she was part of my friend number two's friendship group. And uh, friendship, friend number one eventually got called out by someone else for it. So do you know, I've just noticed this about your marriage. Like, I know you love your husband, but you're speaking badly. Do you realize you're doing that? And friend number one saw this and repented and said, yeah, you're right. I need to deal with that. And the conversation that happened recently was that friend one said to friend number two, did you notice what other, the other friend said to me? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I did. I said, well, why didn't you say that to me? Why do you let me carry on doing that? And they, they just said, well, I just assume that's, that's just what you're like. It's like, what? You just left me in a place of destru- destruction. In a place of sin against my husband. So friend number two had to, to repent and say sorry to friend number one. Not because they'd done anything wrong. They hadn't just respected the husband. They allowed friend number one to continue to do so. We have a responsibility to others. How do we do this? Well, the first thing to do if you spot something is in one sense be appropriately slow to deal with it. Just because someone gets something wrong in a moment, just think, right, this is my opportunity to put the preaching into action. Maybe small group this week think, oh, they said something out of turn. I'm going to give them a quick slapping for that. No, no, be slow to it. We're going to be those that love and be wise and considerate. Think, do I need to bring this up? Is this a big enough deal? Is this the right moment to do it? Is it a real heart issue? Maybe just a word out of turn. To be careful. Next thing we do is we to pray. If you're praying for someone, you quickly work out how your heart is towards them. Think, is my heart really to love this person and to help keep them from destruction? Next thing is to examine your motives. Job's motives were all kinds of mixed. He hated Absalom. He didn't love him. And he maybe could have dealt, dealt differently, even with the execution or the capturing of Absalom, but he didn't. He tortured him. He did it badly. Examine your motives. Say, God, are my motives right in this? It, am I just upset on behalf of someone else? Or am I upset on behalf of myself? Is that what I want to do with it? And then you ask, ask yourself the question, should I be covering this in love? The Bible talks about that. Sometimes in love, we bring things to people. Sometimes in love, we cover it over. Just think, you know what? I can forgive that person, particularly if it's against yourself. Say, so, you know what? I'm going to choose just to forgive. I'm going to choose to absorb the pain in the same way that Jesus has absorbed the pain of our sin. Then what we do, we want to speak the truth in love. When we speak it, we want to do it from a place of love and also from a place of humility. How do we do it from a place of humility? You're saying, hey, I'd love to bring something to you. I know that I am not perfect. If you start, start going, hey, I've got it together and I've dealt with these things in my life, you should now deal with them as well. They're going to tell you to get lost and rightfully so. We do it with humility say, you know what? As someone who gets things wrong, I would welcome the uh, uh, input of other people. I'd love just to speak to you about something in your life that I'm seeing. 
I could be getting it wrong, but I'd love to have, just have a conversation about it. At that point, then ask questions and don't make statements. I've been on the hard end of this sometimes where someone's come to me and said, you have done this, this, and this, and this, and this. And I've said, that's because this, this, and this. And they've said, oh, I'm sorry, I saw it as this. And I was like, no, no, if only you'd come and ask me what my motive was or why I'd done those things, this would have been an easier conversation. Much better to ask questions and say, hey, I'm seeing is this. I'm seeing the fact you're talking about that person. Do you think that might be gossip? They had an opportunity to say, no, no, no. They, they asked me to talk about it with so-and-so. Or, yeah, you're right, it's gossip. Thanks for calling me out on it. Ask questions. I love to talk a bit about uh, welcoming it when people bring things to you. But guess what? Joel's going to talk about that next week. So come back then and we can talk about how, how to respond when people confront us with our sin. Reality is, don't fear though. Don't be timid people. Let's, get in, let's be good at this. Really having a loving and a deep community of people who talk about difficult and hard things in our lives. You learn to do this by doing this. You'll get it wrong, you'll get it right, and you'll work out how it works, but it's worth it. Friendships are deepened when you have these kind of discussions. The family strengthens when you talk about the hard things in life. Where have you got this right? Where have you got this wrong? Maybe just have a consider that. Maybe consider that today. Maybe, maybe an opportunity for you to uh, ask God for forgiveness or even someone forgiveness that you've got it wrong with. Uh, but it also might be an opportunity for you to begin to move out in this and to begin to help other people stay off a path of destruction. My third and last point is destruction in life. Absalom's downfall, his destruction is ultimately down to him. David played a part in it by not parenting him well. Jeremy's men are the ones that killed him, but ultimately his destruction was down to himself. Why? Well, because he was a proud man who took great pride in his position and in his hair. We read this in Samuel 14, 23, 25. Excuse me. He said, Now in all Israel, there's no, uh, no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of the year, he used to cut it when it was heavy or on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. He was proud of his hair, proud of his appearance. If he was at the royal wedding, he'd be the one getting snapped and the camera zooming in on him. He was the one to look at. He was the media's darling in that sense. And he knew it. He knew he was something to look at. He knew he was a prince and he had authority and he puffed him up to a place where he wanted to usurp God's anointed king. He was concerned about being the best and leaving the best legacy. And although he had sons born to him early in life, they'd obviously died in infancy or died in battle. So he was left with no sons to leave the legacy that he'd wanted to. And so he built a stone statue to himself that everyone might remember him. But this passage shows that it wasn't the stone statue that ended up being a monument to him. It was the pile of stones. And if you are an Israelite reading this back in Old Testament times, you know, pile of stones, oh, no way. I know that's not what you're thinking because you have no clue. But back then, a pile of stones, if that was your burial grave, that was a sign that you were a traitor, that you are a cursed person. That was Absalom's legacy. His name is a traitor and as a cursed one. That's the monument that was left for him. What does this mean for us? Well, the reality is, is that each of us have giftings in our lives, things that we value, and we've got to choose what to do with them. Are we going to build a monument to Jesus or build a pile of stones for ourselves? 
Earlier in the book of Samuel, the, uh, the people of God raise up what we call an Ebenezer, which is a kind of stone statue to say, thank you for God for your help. And we always choose to, what, are we going to build up an Ebenezer say, God, thank you for every good thing you've given me. Knowing that even the breath in my lungs, as well as all the blessings you've ever given me, they're yours. I want to live, live in them and give them back to you. Or am I going to build something for myself that won't last and end up being just a pillar of stones? In your life, is your life a monument of thanks to God? Or maybe you're going after some other things. Maybe the monument you're building is like Absalom. Maybe it's your looks. Maybe it's your position. Maybe it's your humour, your intellect, your finance, your family. Not bad things in themselves, but things that you've begun to hold tighter than Jesus. Things you said, I want to hold onto these for myself. If you do that, you're a traitor to Jesus. Strong words, I know, but you're a traitor. God's given you those things to honour him. If you use them to honour yourself, you're in the place of sin. We need to humble ourselves and say, God, no, these things are from you. Absalom's downfall was uh, only a matter of time before it came because he exalted himself. And Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is our ultimate example in this. He laid down his kingship. He laid down his equality with God. Ultimately, he laid down his life to God. And what had already God do? God exalted him to the highest place. Let me finish by just talking about the tree. Absalom got his head caught in a tree, which again, you'll know is a reference to Deuteronomy, don't you? If you were back then, you'd see that. Hang, hung on a tree, no way. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime, punishable, punishable death, and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is, hanged man is cursed by God. Absalom was cursed. What does cursed mean? It means he was cut off. Cut off from God, cut off from the nation that he was trying to be king of. We too, our sin results in us deserving to be hung on a tree. Did you know that? The things you've done wrong in your life, they deserve for you to be cut off from God. The good news is, though, there's another person who hung on a tree, and that was Jesus. It says this in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We have a choice to make with our lives. At the end of our days, will we be the ones who take on the curse for our sin? Or are we going to say, Jesus, please take the curse for me? We've all done things wrong, all done things that are shameful, that need to be forgiven. And there's only one that can do it. And that is Jesus. And he did it, how? By dying on a tree, by dying on the wooden cross for us. And he was also laid under a pile of stones for us. The great thing is he was raised to life, proving he had power over sin and death, that we might have a hope of life and eternity with him. If you do not know this Jesus, you need to know him. Don't let your life go to destruction. Do you know where you will be this day if you died? Do you know that Jesus can save you and redeem you from your sin? If you do, then we're going to celebrate it in a moment by worshipping and by taking communion together. If you don't know that, I urge you, find out more. Maybe from the person you come from, come, come with brother, or with, uh, from one of the leaders in the church. We'd love to talk to you more about how you can come and know Jesus even today. Let me pray for us.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. And it's not always easy, the messages that it contains, Lord God, but we know that it's for our good. And Lord, I just want to pray that we each would just take something away from this today, Lord God, that you might keep us from destruction and you might help us to keep others from destruction, whether that's our children or brothers and sisters in the church, Lord God. I pray that we might be a bold people, those who are good at loving one another, loving enough to discipline our children, loving enough to say the hard things to one another. Lord God, and we might love you enough to give you all of our lives as well, holding nothing back, not building a monument to ourselves, but a monument to you, we pray, Jesus. Amen.